This is an ABC podcast. As many of us are heading back into the office at least some of the time after a year at home, it's a pretty big psychological shift. How are you coping? I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we delve into how best to manage this shift and the experience of hitting the pandemic wall. Michelle Morrison is an organisational psychologist and she's coaching and running programs for leaders facilitating their own and their employees' return to work. I asked Michelle if going back into the office is actually harder for many people than the sudden shift to working from home. I think they were two different uh, moments in time. I think uh, with the first one, it was very episodic. Every Victorian was sent home. It was a moment in time. There was equality around this. Everybody went home. I think the return to work is much more uh, chronic, as in it's over an extended period. The decision isn't clear and it's not equitable. So it evokes a different experience. And I think certainly people are struggling coming back to work. They're not quite sure how to engage with their organisation organisations. They're not sure if they ask for too much. Will they be seen as being a troublemaker? They're not even sure of what they want. So I think it's difficult. And I think then there's the transition back to catching public transport, going into the office, and then there's separation anxiety. We've gotten to love our gardens, our relationship with our family and our community, and we miss those things. So I think they're different, but I wouldn't say one is worse than the other. But we, we yet to see some really good research around that. Michelle, some companies are mandating a return to work at the office. What are some of the issues you can see with this approach? I think coming off the back of a period where we know that there's been significant employee burnout uh, just because of the incredible change and adaptation that employees have had to undertake in order to accommodate lockdowns and startups, etc. I think mandating a return to work undermines the potential for a creative solution and also doesn't facilitate employee engagement and that's at the very heart of a healthy return back to work. And so what do you think the knock-on effects of this might be? So I think the knock-on effect for mandating is that you can you know, increase disengagement when you need not. Uh, I think a more collaborative approach would yield fantastic results because people are so keen to get back to work and keen to be productive and make a contribution. Let's hear from some leaders who are managing the return. I'm Genevieve Collins. I am the Chief Executive Partner at Ladron Rogers Law Firm. I'm Nick Howden and I'm the CEO of Real Thing AI. So the way we've managed it is, I think, to ask people about their preferences. So we've continued to survey and listen to our people, which is very important for us because providing the best people experience we can is something um, that is important to Lander and Rogers. So we know now that 95% of us want to work in the office part-time only and that a large majority of those, about 73% on our most recent survey, want to work remotely two to three days. In relation to the mandating point, that I think is perhaps of some contention because 76% of our people, which is a large majority, tell us that they do not want to work mandated days. They want the flexibility to choose. And that is, in fact, one of the top three benefits of being able to work flexibly. So we are trying to accommodate that. So we were reasonably comfortably working from home. We're we're a software company, so making the transition to home was quite quick and easy. The deciding factor for us was really about getting people together physically. And one of the other bumps was that 
we have a number of senior people, all of whom had quite good setups at home, and they usually they have a study or somewhere that they can work. But we also had a number of juniors, and I discovered in Zoom calls that that some of them were sitting on their bed in their bedroom with a laptop working. So needless to say, that wasn't the ideal circumstance, and they actually were begging to come back into an office so that they could sit at a desk and have a proper work environment. And the second reason is that people really like to work together. So in particular, a number of our junior programmers like to work in pairs. And so sitting at the same desk, pointing at the same screen and collaborating on a project um, is something that it's very difficult to do when you're online using Zoom and so on. Uh, and so that, that's a preference that, again, has come from the bottom up staff wanting to be together in the office uh, so that they can they can talk and collaborate much more easily. So I'm, I'm very relaxed about people still working from home when they need to or when it works for them, but also being in an office when that works for everyone. I don't know about you, but I felt sort of de-socialised after a year of working from home. I'd even convinced myself that I was an introvert. I asked Michelle if this was a common experience. Not the introvert bit. Look, uh, I called 200 leaders during the lockdown and um, the Melbourne lockdown between July and September. And uh, whilst I haven't been able to, I've I've published some of this work, uh, but it hasn't been presented and peer review is so important when you're analysing this. uh, I I think that uh, people were really, did a mighty job of, working from a very small room. They were often tucked into a part of the house. They didn't always see people. And so I think that they formed habits and they formed routines and a way of relating to their world consistent with that. So I think it's quite reasonable uh, to say that people feel uncomfortable with the changing noise levels, with the greater social requirements around the workplace, the need to make small talk, the need to talk about broader issues. And even there's a lot of pressure at the moment, it seems, to be vulnerable in the workplace, to actually talk about those things that are really difficult. What sorts of things can managers then do to help their people through this transition, do you think? And I would just encourage people to create an opening for genuine conversation, but not to be pushy about it. I think that it's easy to underestimate the impact that the pandemic and uh, the lockdown has had on people. So I think uh, leading conversations that matter, asking questions and then listening fully, uh, showing compassion and support and encouragement and hope are all really important factors about helping people make the emotional transition through this period of time. So then how much of mandating a return to the office is around power rather than curiosity and that openness that you speak of? I think it's been really tough for people who have lost power during the pandemic. You know, I think their organisations were full of artefacts that were about distinguishing uh, roles, relationship between roles, and it's been tough for people to let go of that. And also to trust their employees and to make sure that their employees are still working when they can't see them. But this speaks to a much bigger issue about the nature of the relationship between the leader and their team and between peers. And so I think working on trust um, is really important and would, 
you know, these conversations are part of building that is to have this collaborative approach where we talk about what do we want in our workplaces, what is it that makes us feel socially relevant and important in what we do, how do we uh, like to be treated and what are some of the physical uh, sort of aspects of the way that we work, where we sit, who we work with, what sort of hours we work. I think it's a great opportunity to have that conversation and I think the reluctance to have this conversation is in part about lack of capability. People talk about difficult conversations. Well, I think for people in senior roles, it's it's uh, an invitation to start having conversations that matter, which I think is a, a much healthier frame to put around it so that they can engage with people around these questions rather than just sort of mandate or to be directive because I don't think it's going to be the best outcome. And Genevieve Collins agrees. I think one of the things that helps to address the fatigue, the anxiety and the uncertainty is regular and open communication. So one of the things we've done is implement a regular Ask Me Anything session where it's a firm-wide Teams meeting where people can ask anonymous questions of me and I will do my best to answer them. And that's been really interesting and overwhelmingly positive. And consistently through our engagement surveys, we've been told that that's one of the, one of the changes that they most uh, enjoy in the new world. And I think it does contribute to people being feeling like they're being listened to and they are being listened to and receiving answers and that freedom of being able to ask anything anonymously and if we don't know, we don't know, but um, it gives people that opportunity and comfort. One of the things I've been hearing about is hitting the pandemic wall now that the pandemic crisis has passed or hopefully has passed. I asked Michelle if she'd been hearing this too. I think there's a general tiredness around, you know, life would be what I would say. And I think we came out of a period of such stability, all these changes, adaptations, the uh, energy, the emotional energy to deal with what we're seeing on social media, what we see in the news. I think it's been a really busy time for minds uh, and for the way that we think about uh, who we are. And I would have to say, I think some of my clients have had, you know, their own little existential crisis. They don't know that they want to work anymore. They don't know what a meaningful life is anymore. So I think with these sorts of big questions floating around, which I think are healthy, I think that this is a healthy thing to think about, but it does take up space. It takes up emotional space. It takes up thinking space. So I think it's been a period of change and this leads to fatigue. And I also think that people worked incredible hours. So regardless of the psychological side of this, I think the practical side was that people in the main really put in. I was so very proud to be a Melbournean when I made those calls to see how people were just giving their best to keep their jobs functioning, to keep their clients happy. It was a mighty effort. So in terms of fatigue, I think it's quite reasonable that people have hit a, hit a wall and they need not only a change of scenery, they need some rest, but they also need to look for things that really inspire them and give them meaning so that they're filling the bucket with more than rest. You know, rest helps us to deal with, you know, the load, but it doesn't actually inspire us. It doesn't create this sense of joy and hope. And so finding things that manifest that in us is also important. That's organisational psychologist Michelle Morrison. If you miss part one where we talk about how to develop trust in hybrid teams, scroll back through our podcasts. 
do you hear that thunder? <laughs> oh, just, wow. Is that thunder? It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's like a, it, um, like a summer storm here in April. Um, so and I hope are it's you okay? Are you in a dry place? Oh, yeah. No, uh, I'm safe fine. And, and, and <laughs> indoors. I hope we don't lose power. That would be disruptive. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't. I think that's unlikely. But it is quite dramatic out there wow. all of a sudden. It just came out of nowhere. Ah, the joys of remote work. So now we know our guest, Amy Edmondson, won't be electrocuted. Let's get into it. Amy's a professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School, and I asked her if she'd also observed the pandemic wall. Yeah, I have. I have um, various terms, Zoom fatigue. It's one I saw today, um, languishing. We're languishing. And this is a, a, you know, a giant experiment it not intended as such of course but this is none of us in our lifetime have ever been through anything like this before and frankly no other lifetime either because we never had these kinds of technologies that it would allow us to do as much continuity of work as we have done so yeah i think we are i think having gone for longer than a year in these new modes um, there's a certain degree of exhaustion um, mm. and and it, I think it's exacerbated by not knowing what happens next. And unfortunately, we can't know. I mean, there's lots of predictions, but we really can't know what happens next. Now, what are some of the key dynamics that set successful teams apart from others? Well, one of the most talked about key dynamics these days is psychological safety and there was a famous study at Google a few years ago that reinforced this point, uh, but this is something that I've been studying for many years. So teams with psychological safety, which is roughly a shared belief that you can speak up in the team without fear of humiliation or rejection. And what happens when a team doesn't have it, Amy? The most important thing that happens is that people hold back. Right? They hold mm. back their questions. They hold back their ideas. They don't admit mistakes. And as a result, the teams are at risk of failures. They're at risk of really preventable failures, the kinds of things that if people had spoken up or, or requested help when they needed it, wouldn't have had to happen. The other thing they're at risk of is not innovating enough to be really effective in our changing world. And in this chaotic and changing environment in which we're operating at the moment, why would you say to people it's now super critical to encourage psychological safety in our workplaces? The, the reason I would say that is embedded in your question, right? In a world that's in constant change and where, 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 where small changes can make a big difference, where there's lots of uncertainty, where there's lots of interdependence, you need people to speak up and speak up quickly more than ever, right? Anyone might see something quickly that other people miss. And if they're hesitating, they're not willing to speak up about it, the team's at risk. But if, if you can get into that habit that you just see something, you say something, you have an idea, you raise it. There's no such thing as a crazy idea. If you have a question, you ask it. Right? That's not natural and normal for all <laughs> teams, but it is absolutely crucial, especially in a dynamic, uncertain, interdependent environment. 
So let's look at the hybrid work environment in which we're now operating. Mm. Why would you say and extrapolate that psychological safety <laughs> uh, is now uh, critical for hybrid workplaces? Yes, thank you. It's a very important question because one of the things uh, about hybrid work, and I'm sure so many of your listeners have, have been experiencing this, so I'm preaching to the choir, but one of the things about hybrid work is that um, you don't have the effortless cues that you used to have about what's going on. I mean, you can just look over the, the cubicle and see what others are doing. You're in the meeting room, you're reading faces, you're um, overhearing conversations in a productive way. So when we are co-located, there's an awful lot of information we get that we take for granted. Uh, when, we're, when we're virtual, we have to be more heavy-handed about it. We have to be more explicit in sharing what we know and in sharing what we're thinking. And, and we're missing so much just tacit information. And so we are at greater risk when we're working in a hybrid manner. Some people are face-to-face -face and some people are, are, are virtual. That means that we're at even greater risk of not communicating effectively and not communicating openly. And then the work will suffer. Can you share some strategies, please, for leaders and managers and what we could do? Yeah, well, like all real managerial challenges, um, the, the most important thing to do is make it explicit, make it discussable, right? Every, don't have people just privately or behind closed doors saying, wow, this is really challenging or privately feeling they can't get their voice in in a Zoom meeting where it might be harder uh, to speak up because maybe there's a number of people on the screen and you just don't want to impose, right? So if you, so by make it explicit and discussable, let's just put, put it right out there. This is going to be hard. We're going to have to, we're going to have to find ways around this. Like we're going to have to work together to make this new arrangement as functional, you know, as, as good as it possibly can be. And there's no playbook, right? We don't have um, an easy recipe to follow. So we're going to be we're going to be pioneers, if you will. So this is the kind of this is what I call framing the work, and 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 you're framing it as both an adventure and an adventure that and a problem, a challenge, one that needs other people's input to to get it right. That it's new territory. So so that's that's just I think an important kind of um, discussion to have openly and explicitly. Um, and then I think another uh, thing that you have to do is, is, is lead the way, right? Sort of demonstrate with your own behavior, um, demonstrate candor, demonstrate vulnerability, um, show that you, um, you're facing your own um, challenges and constraints in your own personal life. Um, when, when you're juggling, you know, maybe school-aged kids or older parents or, you know, other demands on your life uh, outside the job and be, be open and humble and vulnerable about those things, which sets the, sets the context where other people are, are able to follow, if you will. I love that. Um, and let's go now to virtual meetings. I'm very intrigued by what you think could make a real difference to foster psychological safety in our virtual meeting environment, Amy? Well, in in uh, in face to face meetings, 
we, as I said before, we have a lot of, of um, subtle cues about what people are thinking when they're, when they're leaning in to say something or when they have a look on their face that they've, they're really thinking and you can kind of say, hey, well, it looks like you had a thought. Um, <laughs> we don't have that in virtual meetings. So what that means is we need to be more structured. Now, that sounds like a straitjacket, right? That sounds like a bad word, but I don't think it is. I think structure mm. is your friend. And by structure, I mean simple things like the check-in. Um, and that can be, if you're if you want it to be, that can be about personal or life things, you know, how, how are things going? Or it can simply be the work check-in, the catch-up, you know, what, what, what's, what's working, what's not working, that, that, to make sure that every voice is heard and to be um, systematic and structured in terms of ensuring you're, you're getting especially the input of a subject matter expert um, so that you're not at risk of someone who's whose input might really matter staying quiet simply because they're the kind of person who doesn't want to impose or feels uncomfortable just speaking up randomly in the Zoom meeting. Mm. And so you then have to be more proactive in bringing their voice in because you know it might be relevant or in creating space um, uh, where we just pause for a moment and say, what are we missing? Who has a different view? You can encourage people to use the chat. Let's all chat in, you know, the top three worries we have about this project or the top one worry. Um, let's do a quick poll to see where we are. You know, in other words, use the tools that come along with the technology to partially compensate for the losses, the gaps that the technology cannot offer with respect to face-to-face so apart from psychological safety, what are some other key dynamics that would make a team successful apart from that? Clarity, you know, clarity about why this team exists, you know, and, and um, what it is we have to produce together, right? So, uh, it's, I mean, it, that sounds so obvious, right? But, but in many, many cases, um, you could interview each member of the team and get a different answer. So we have to have clarity. We have to share it. We have to have um, that, um, that sense of clarity about what we're on the hook to deliver. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you find yourself, if people find themselves in too many meetings where there's no real reason they're in that meeting or they, there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to happen differently in their work task as a result of being there. Um, why are they there? Right. So we, we have to start, you know, we have to have, we have to have, not start. I mean, I think well-run teams have, have, have discipline. They have clarity about where they're going. They have um, high levels of, of mutual accountability, which is a wonderful complement to psychological safety, right? Psychological mm-hmm. safety makes it easy for people to bring them, their selves forward, makes them easy to speak up. But mutual accountability is, a, is a, a feeling of or a belief about owing my team members, you know, the, the work that I said I would do. And it's the, it's being dependable, being, being a good team member in that sense. Mm. So there's clarity about what we're doing. There's, there's dependability and mutual accountability about getting things done. And then transparency, which of course is enabled by psychological safety, but it's not the same thing. It's just a, rather than going off and doing your thing for a long time and then coming back and saying, is this what you wanted? Um, a, a lot more 
transparency along the way where we're, we have a, a clear line of sight on what each other is doing uh, that helps us stay coordinated and, and in sync. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Amy. You're very welcome. Professor Amy Edmondson. And if you'd like to read more about this, Amy's book is The Fearless Organisation, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation and Growth. And while we hope you might have learned something helpful today, when was the last time you learned something at work that will help you get ahead? It could be doing a new task. It could be watching an online video. It could be talking to a colleague. It doesn't necessarily have to fit the formal version of learning. And we found that more than half, just over half, 51% of Australian workers are effectively doing no learning at work at all. Are you in that 51%? Well, tune in next week because remember your biggest investment is in yourself. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong. And until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.